Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of Lowdown. Today I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by the technical director of Columbus Crew, Mark Nichols. Mark, a big warm welcome to the show. Thank you, Connor. Thank you for inviting me. Mark, as is opening tradition on this podcast, could you please take us through your earliest football memory? Well, I was thinking about this because I've, I've listened to a couple of episodes and um, I think that uh, my first professional memory in terms of the, the world game would have been the 1978 World Cup. And I remember Archie Gemmell's goal against Holland for Scotland. And I remember the ticker tape in the final. And I remember playing in the schoolyard and outside with my friends. But my, my first profound memory would have been watching Wolves, my club, in the League Cup final in 1980, beating Nottingham Forest, who were the European champions at the time. And where I lived in a you know, council flat in Wolverhampton, we could see Molyneux, we could see the lights. And I was probably at my first game there when I was five or six at Wolves. And so in terms of, uh, obviously, that that set me up for life, where I thought this is was how it worked in football, that that my club would would be be great success have great success, but um, unfortunately we haven't been back since then to to that kind of level. So um, yeah, that would be my first, I would say, profound one. Fantastic, you know, all those memories steeped in nostalgia. And I mean, I think that's the first ever mention of Archie Gemmell on this podcast too. <laughs> that was but, a wonderful ball. Um, if you haven't seen it, people should check it out. But um. I mean, looking back then as well, I mean, obviously coaching played such a prominent role in your career. I mean, how early a role, I suppose, did that play in your upbringing and development? Well, I think it's when when I realised that I wasn't, I wasn't going to be able to play uh, at, at a high level. And football's always been my, my first love. And when you realise at 23, 24 that, you know, you, you can't play it maybe a standard that a professional standard that can um, you can have a career in. I, I started coaching early and went and did courses with the FA, um, did as much as I could, got experience working in the community, after school programming, and really got the, the, the coaching bug quite early, which meant that, you know, you, while others perhaps are playing who, who may turn into good coaches, you, you kind of have a head start a little bit in that, um, you know, most players will, will, will retire at 33, 34, and you've already got 10 years on them in terms of coaching. And I had a real thirst for education in terms of coaching courses, methods, and magazines at the time. And so really that was what uh, what sparked my interest. And then, of course, the move to the USA meant that you could do that in a, in a full-time capacity. And so that's how my, my, my coaching journey began. It's an interesting one because it's kind of only been brought into the modern day, really, in the past seven to ten years. You see a lot of young footballing professionals scrapping, indeed, the playing career to double down and focus on coaching and being intentional about it. but. You know, I assume even looking back 20 years ago, 
would have been a rarity. People like yourself doubling down on those early coaching days, being very intentional about not only your own growth, but about the development of the game as a whole. So I'm very intrigued to learn more about the decision-making involved in leaving the UK and at the time emigrating to the States and moving to the Carolinas in specific. Yeah, so obviously there wasn't, it was over 25 years ago now, but and there wasn't the opportunities in the in the UK like that there is now in terms of the impact of EPPP and the onset of you know wonderful academies with lots of positions, lots of teams, lots of roles. And it really wasn't a difficult decision in that, you know, I'd spent a year working and I visited USA for the 1994 World Cup and immediately thought to myself that, that you know, this is a, going to be a blossoming country when it came to the game. Because although, you know, it was at the time a, a little bit of an afterthought in the US, when you visited those stadiums and you saw the the immigration whether it was watching Greece or Italy or the Republic of Ireland, um, that they were full of full of um, Americans, um, obviously many immigrants, and so it became clear that there was going to be opportunity here, that there was a shortage of qualified coaches and ones that had experience, and it was actually my my wife who's a physical therapist. Uh, had an opportunity through a recruitment agency to, to go to America for a year. And um, we said, okay, let's, let's go for a year and see what happens. And we arrived with a suitcase each and a, saved up $1,000 at the time. And here we are so much longer than that. We didn't really, I don't think, anticipate this, but um, we're still here and happy. Amazing to see the trajectory since then but um i mean like in the carolinas what people may not know about yourself you'd spent eight to ten years and indeed you you enjoyed quite a bit of success i believe you're a u.s soccer coaching or academy coach of the earth on three separate occasions but i mean for those listening we touched upon it on a previous podcast as well but having to coach in north american football there is a lot of many different hats you have to wear so what I'm most intrigued about to learn is how did you cope with that? Were you surprised by it initially? Did you take it in your stride? Yeah, there was always surprises. Um, I think, you know, you, you when you when you grow up in England and, you know, your local games around the corner, sometimes you can walk there. Obviously, you know, the, the, the amount of travel that we do here at just about every level, whether it's, you know, our first team traveling over three time zones and, you know, a six-hour flight to play away in the northwest of America. Um, it was also with 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 youth teams, um, whether that was traveling five hours for a match or, or catching a flight, which of of course you know you would never do, and and you know back in back in England. Um, and I'm, when I, when I think about the, the experiences that that brought, they were really varied. And in order to make ends meet, especially when I arrived in North Carolina, I had to do lots of different things. I was a, uh, a scout for Montreal who, when they started the MLS franchise and major reason for that was strategic in that a lot of the college programs in the Carolinas were very prominent. And at the time the college draft was very important to a new franchise. 
I was coaching in the academy. US soccer began the the academy, developmental academy at the time it was called. And so I was there for the arrival of that. And I had a wonderful opportunity in the summers to coach in the, the PDL, which is now the USL2, which exposed me to the very best college players, uh, many of which, you know, you turn on the MLS games on a Saturday are still playing uh, in MLS. And so all of these various experiences gave me great exposure to a high level, to managing different things, to leading a club with with a board and um, quite, quite a lot of players, thousands, um, lots of staff. So it was really that that variation that exposed me to 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 a, a lot of opportunities to grow. And what's most intriguing about it too is that obviously you're firm proponent of player development and it was a reputation that was cultivated indeed throughout your tenure at the Seattle Sounders, which lasted a course of seven or eight years in which you served as director of player development and academy director. Well, coming in the doors at Seattle Sounders in 2013, just you know, four years after its inception, I mean, how does an organization as such create in early days a culture of development like it did and such quickly rose to prominence with it throughout the North American soccer pyramid? Yeah, I was, I was it was a catalyst actually for the, the, my move to Seattle was that I worked for US soccer in coaching courses and it, it, there was a partnership between MLS and, and the French Federation. And on the first French Federation course, the, the EFCL, there was a um, representative from each MLS club and, and I was selected by US soccer to attend. And so that exposed me to, to all of the MLS clubs and their people. And, you know, even from that course, when when, you, when I look back now and who was on it, you know, Wilfred Nancy was on that course. And he and I actually visited Lyon together as part of that course, Olympic Lyonnais, which had a wonderful record in youth development. Greg Vanni, um, Luci Gonzalez. So a lot of people on that course have actually gone on to some very good things. But, you know, it was on that course that I met Darren Swatsky, who was the academy director in Seattle. And I was invited to, to, to go and, and, and start the under 14 and under 15 program in Seattle. At the time, the academies I felt were, were somewhat of an afterthought in MLS. They were there just at under 16 and under 18. They were there really because the owner was were told by MLS that they had to have an academy. This was going to be the future. And they were more, I would say at the time, leaning on the community side of things rather than an elite academy. And when I started in Seattle, um, Darren moved on quite quickly and I was afforded the opportunity to become academy director. And that was also at a time when Garth Lagerway arrived at the club. And Garth had had some early success with the programme in Salt Lake. And Salt Lake was a club that really depended on their academy in order to punch above their weight and have the success that they had. And so Garth coming in was, was a real pivotal moment for me because um, he gave me the the keys to the car, so to speak, with the, the youth development. We were able to really not only reach out into the Seattle community and make relationships with clubs, but we, we then started to look further afield in terms of players because Seattle's somewhat of an isolated community. 
Um, but we're not too far from the likes of California and, and other places, which are real hotbeds for talent. And not only did the academies grow and we'd, we'd had more teams, um, more staff, more resources, but we also then began the the second team movement, which meant that part of the role was actually to be the, the general manager of the USL championship team, which at the time was Seattle Sounders 2 and eventually developed into Tacoma Defiance. And so I've been very lucky, I think, kind of with, with some of the timing that I had, whether that was in North Carolina with the onset academies and then the other opportunities with um, arriving at Seattle at the right time through a course. Um, so I, I feel quite lucky to have to have had that journey and very interesting too though even researching and prep for this podcast mark i heard you in a previous interview before when you're at seattle and you spoke about being aggressive in terms of giving players opportunities and the rationale as to so as to such was you guys did a study of the champions league quarter finalists i believe at the time was in 2017 and it was something akin to 78 to 80 percent of players playing in that game or in those games had made their debuts by the age of 17 years of age and I mean you backed it up because throughout your tenure there was the transition of I believe 15 players from the academy straight into the MLS and USL team yeah it's still a study I refer to now and and part of it was obviously you know we have this wonderful college culture here where you know many good players have come from and it's a wonderful opportunity for young people if they're good at football to to get a education. However, it was at the detriment really of of player development because between the ages of eighteen and twenty two, um, you lose your players. You can always bring them back um, and, and sign them out of college, but you lose their development. And by doing that, you also learn sorry lose a major aspect of return on investment so if you're going to operate an academy at a high level and you're going to develop players at the highest level you need to have control of the player to bring them up the way that you want to but also you need to expose them early in order to maximize their value whether that's in your club as part of the strategy regarding the salary cap and affordability and culture and community but then also in terms of their overall value for potential sale. And, and, you know, in Seattle, it was very good that DeAndre Yedlin became the first homegrown player to play in a World Cup. Big, big move to, to Tottenham. Um, and so that immediately set the tone of, of what, what could be done. But even now and recently, I've been looking at our strategy here in Columbus and looked at the players that have recently gone to Europe as sales and you know, they've played 2,200 minutes by the age of 20 in MLS. They haven't hung around too long in second teams, maybe as many as 20 appearances. And they get to get sold at about the age of 19. And the average sale over the last few years is about 5 million. And so when you think about, you know, the, the money that's invested into academies, into second teams, in order to maximise that and get that return, um, you have to you have to be strategic about it and use some basic facts to guide where you are. Now, of course, the players have to be good enough and you have to have a coach that's willing to play young players. It has to be part of a club strategy because you can be the best academy director 
in the world. But if the if the head coach has no interest in young players, it's not part of the club's vision, then it's it's somewhat of a waste, or can be. I'm very intrigued now. Is I'm going to say taking your director's hat on or taking your director's hat off and putting on your coaching hat? Does that concern you that some young players are now leaving the continent, making the move abroad, making twenty appearances or less? Do you believe they're leaving a lot of their development behind, making the move early, or would you, as a coach, would you advocate making the jump even that early in their own development? Yeah, so I think when you know a young player comes in the building here and they say, oh, I want to play for Man United, well, I think that's great. How how can we help you get there? And the 20 appearances was actually just in the in the second team. It's 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 actually a good amount of minutes at the first team level. And you know, you can use that as the proving ground. And if if we are able to develop players that can play in the in the Champions League or for a top European club, I think that's a really healthy part of the development of our league. And there was a time in the league where we you know we we try very hard to to bring back the best American players. Obviously in Seattle we brought back Clint Dempsey and somewhat in the peak of his career. Where I think now we know that we're part of the global transfer market, um, and it's actually led to. The, the growth and I think sustain, sustainability of our league and so overall it's something that um, I, I think is a, is a very good thing for us to be able to develop players at the, that can compete with the world's best and hopefully we see a little bit of that in the next World Cup when we host it and the young players that got a chance in this World Cup your Weston McKinney, your Tyler Adams, these kind of guys can really have reap the rewards of the move to Europe, the exposure, the playing at the very top level. And um, we can continue a sustainable cycle. Hmm. And it's it's pretty intriguing too. I mean, you touched upon it there. Obviously, the league's reputation has been enhanced. The game itself has grown here in North America. You know, as MLS continues to grow as being a league of choice, I mean, what impact do you foresee this will have on player development? It's it's interesting now when when I speak to some colleagues in in Europe, in Germany, and in England. I speak to directors of scouting and recruitment. They list out the very best young players in MLS immediately. This is and and maybe some of this is a result of Brexit when it comes to 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 England. And they have to look in, in different places. But five years ago, even, they wouldn't know very many young players in, in North America. And so I think that we're being um, targeted, actually, now. You know, in the last, in this last season in Columbus, we've probably had, I know of five Premier League clubs at, at our games. And so... When you think about the growth of the game, the exposure, it, it all comes as being part of the world game as opposed to be being isolated from it. And so the obvious stuff now with, with Messi being here and the whole world watching him um, also raises the exp and, and exposes um, other players. You know, for example, there's a wonderful young player from Miami, Kramashki, who I think is 18, 
and looks like he could be a very, very top player. And so this cycle now of exposure just enables us to grow the league, expose the league. And I think, you know, with the, with the World Cup coming up, the Copa America coming up, the World Club Cup, all being here in the next three years, I think we're going to be due another another boom. Really intriguing because, I mean, zooming out and you speak about the context, you know, the league is becoming more and more part of that globalised football world. So, again, touching back to player development, obviously the move of the likes of a Messi, a Jordi Alba, Sergio Busquets is only going to basically enhance the game and it's only going to enhance the reputation of the game worldwide. And as a trickle down, you're seeing the likes of a Kramaski coming through at Inter Miami and then you're seeing other players benefit from getting exposure and playing against the likes of Inter Miami, so on and so forth. But do you foresee clubs having to adapt, possibly American in the near future, perhaps even in the short term, over the foreseeable 12 to 18 months, as MLS continues to grow and evolve, becoming a league of choice in terms of protecting their own player path, player development pathways? Yeah, I think MLS is a league that's set up in order to maximise your resources. You know, so when I think about our club here, in order to compete with the best clubs in MLS, we have to have a strategy. Um, it's unlikely that Messi or Ibrahimovic or Beckham would, would sign for Columbus. You know, they tend to head to the, the bigger markets, the more glamorous markets in LA, New York, uh, and, and now Miami. And so a lot of it is, I think, is knowing who you are, what you can do. Um, what are the other um, marginal gains that you can have in a club? And when you think about the likes of Philadelphia, that's really punched above its weight. Um, it's, it's really been through the development of young players. And so here, our strategy is, is a mixed strategy. But we know that the, the value of young players is still going to be very important because if you can develop your own um, with transfer fees going up in MLS, with wages going up in MLS for players, then not only are you, are you making savings and maximizing your sources, but you're also getting a very big boost with your salary cap. So if you think about a salary of 30 players, sorry, a squad of 30 players, you know, why not, why not spend as much as you can on your top 16 or 18 and, de and develop the others. And just by the nature of that, some of those players are going to blossom and shine and earn the right to play. And so I actually think it's a good thing for, for, for academies here. And the more and more clubs that we have, the more and more of a, a soccer culture that's developed beyond MLS, um, the more opportunity there's going to be for young players and the better MLS has to become in identifying them, developing them for the, for the highest level. So I don't really see this as a threat. I see it as a really big opportunity because, you know, I think it's Manchester United again that's had a, an academy player in their matchday squad for 60 years or wherever else it is. You know, Barcelona's dynasty was formed upon academy players. So the, the very best players in the world 
very best clubs in the world with sustainable success has been from from academy players. And so why why not here? Exactly. And it's uh it's amazing like when you zoom out and choose to view it as an opportunity, what you can do. And I mean a Columbus crew you speak about having a mixed strategy. I was listening to a fantastic podcast yesterday, Founders Podcast about uh, David Ogilvy, master marketeer and advertiser and at his company back in the day, the mantra was sell or else. So you've one job to do, sell or else. So you mm. look maybe at Philadelphia Union, develop or else. There's nothing else. So it's been, it's very interesting to kind of see and hear from you as to where Columbus Crew views themselves in the global ecosystem and in the local ecosystem too of MLS football. I mean, going back in now, and obviously part of your job is not only to enhance player development, but it's also to grow the people that work underneath you too, and more specifically coach development. So let's take, I mean, we're speaking about this roster of 30 players. You have your 18 top guys, and then you have the 12 players that you're really going to invest in. Obviously, it's one thing, you know, identifying that talent, getting it into the building. But how do you go about improving the decision-making qualities of those people that are responsible for getting those margin calls right for in terms of development and working with the player day in, day out? Well, uh, you know, Columbus Crew is the, is the first ever MLS club, so it has a lot of history. However, as you as you probably know, it, it looked like a few years ago now, maybe four or five, that the club was going to be moved to Austin. And what happened during that period, which in all honesty looked likely that, it, that the club would move, was it lost a lot of momentum. Um, young players left, staff members left. And it was obviously reborn really with, with the Save the Crew movement, which was led by the fans, which is organic and and ultimately a, a, a wonderful thing that set us up here. So my point is that it actually feels like it's a little bit of a new club. We have new training ground. We have a new stadium. We have lots and lots of new people. And it was only last year that our second team began to play. It was only last year that everybody became um, together in our building as a true club and it was only as in january when we hired a new head coach and so a massive project right now is what we're calling a one club project which is essentially um, enabling us to, to to form an identity and how we play to create clarity and simplicity in terms of the language we use when we develop and it's all the way through the club one of the criterias when we were doing the coaching search was we wanted a proven developer of talent. And Wilfred and, and his staff have all come through an academy pathway. And I believe if, if you were to ask them, a major part in, in coming to Columbus, because I, I think Wilfred probably had some, some options, was that we can build a club together. And so when you have a, a head coach who, who comes from it from that perspective, as you can imagine, it, it creates a great deal of energy and togetherness for everybody in the club. And so, the, the you know, these, these projects will take a little bit of time in terms of 
um, complete understanding in terms of how we develop player profiles for development and recruitment as we develop our, our game model and, we, and that's throughout the club as we get real clarity on the ages and stages of development for young players as well um, and how we've made changes in the club in terms of integration and also um, freshened up the first team squad to be to be younger, more dynamic and more in line with the vision on how we want to play. So um, it's not like the, the, it's this club that, you know, has, has had people working in it for 10, 15 years or since its onset that there are very few of those. And so what I'm saying is that there's been a big opportunity here, I think, to 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 start again, almost. Really intriguing. Um, I mean, for people that don't know, Columbus is better known as the spiritual home of US soccer. Indeed, when I visited yourself last August, Mark, which you're speaking off air, you brought me to the old stadium and in the middle of a torrential downpour. You know, no cover at all, but it was home to many infamous US-Mexico games back in the day. So zooming back out, I mean, you took over in January 2022. And what I'm most intrigued to learn more is about the change management piece, because obviously I doubt this one club project was incepted from the very first week that you let, that you set a foot in the building. So arriving at the club January 2022, I mean, how long was spent kind of observing, getting to learn the nuances, getting to know the staff before identifying any bit of change? Well, we're very fortunate here in that we have a really robust leadership team. Um, obviously, Tim Bezbachenko is um, highly regarded as as one of the very best GMs in in MLS, and um, and we have plenty of others around him um, that that have been performing at a very high level, whether that's in Toronto or or elsewhere. Um, so really, it was set up, I think, for somebody to to come in and from the soccer perspective and and help unite, guide, assist. But I was very intentional for that first three months in that I wanted to observe what the club was about. So whether that was going to the first team of pre-season at the time, attending the second team pre-season, watching the academy games, um, meeting everybody. The challenge for me, actually, I've thought about this quite a bit, was that in my other roles, I've always been able to um, grow with a club and develop my own staff and hire my own staff over time. Whereas obviously here, you, you inherit just about everything. Everything was pretty much in place. And so that was that was very interesting for me in terms of change and togetherness. And so well, by, by observing, I think, and asking a lot of questions and listening, you're able to, to, to work out that although in, 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 in football, there's, there's, you know, there can be conflicting opinions, but really most people have, have the same kind of things in common. And you, you, by listening and asking questions, you're able to discover the, the, the things that people do agree on. And, and start with those from a foundational perspective. The, the other thing is, I think, to be as transparent and, and as clear as you can be and to involve as many people as, as you can, which can sometimes slow down 
the process. But having that buy-in um, is is the most important thing of all. And 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 also within that, you have to you have to concede certain things. Not everything that we do here is is you know what what I agree with necessarily. Um, so it's a, having that ability to adjust and adapt. And so it's been a really interesting challenge from that perspective. And I mean, obviously touched upon there, Mark, I mean, in previous leadership positions and roles, I mean, you've had the fortunate opportunity to bring in your own staff. I mean, in this position, you've actually had to inherit. So what I'm very interested to learn a bit more upon is over the past 18 months, I mean, what have you learned about your own leadership style? How have you had to evolve? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. Um, you know, there are different ways to lead and we, we would probably all fall into a certain category, whether that's servant leadership, um, whether that's a way of, of, of guiding what happens, um, whether it's been very directive. And like like I mentioned, we, we have a, a very robust front office here. And so we have specialists in various areas. So we have, you know, Issa Tal, who assistant general manager, takes care of the scouting and recruitment and analytics. And Corey Ray, who, who, who's the um, general manager of the, of the second team, Neil McGuinness, who can pick up his phone and call any prominent agent or club in, in the world. And so I've been very fortunate, I've really, really, strong leaders around you can learn from grow from get some uh, historical perspective ask again lots and lots of questions um and what i've what i would say i've learned though is that the the, the different styles of leadership are, are appropriate and so while we all might fall into a certain category of leader and I would describe mine as being sort of quieter behind the scenes um, as a reference in a supportive sense, in an assistant sense. But there have been times when you have to be quite, quite directive. If the message isn't getting across um, that, you know, you have to with certain members of staff or whether it's, it's the same as a coach with a player, um, you know, you have to, to sort of draw a line or to um, lead towards a certain outcome. And so that's meant for, for me personally that, you know, you, you're outside your comfort zone sometimes. Um, the, the, you know, I'm with one person, there may be a different need in terms of the leadership style. They might respond better. Um, but like anything else, you have to take the, the, the opportunity to develop staff and a big part of the, I would say the change in, in Columbus is we've really tried hard to become a club that develops the person, the individual. And so the introduction of individual develop plans for, for players, for coaches, for staff members has been a really prominent part, I think, of, of being able to, to make the strides that we've made. And so it's been in introducing little things like that. Well, that's quite a big thing, actually, in terms of and an important thing. Um, leads to a little bit more of a, of a culture of feedback um, and openness. 
formalized as well as obviously the obvious informal dialogue. And I think for the most part, that's appreciated. And that enables you to gain some trust and therefore um, you're able to address issues or, or problems or um, move things forward. Of course, and what does that ITB plan look for yourself, Mark? Because, you know, quite prominent theme when speaking to leaders on this podcast is that they take a lot of inspiration and influence not only from leaders in their own field and football, whatnot, but from other sports under in other industries. So is there any other leaders or any other industries that you're currently studying that you're taking inspiration and indeed imparting wisdom from? Well, like, like I said, we have, have some wonderful leaders here that um, I'm able to, to draw a lot of knowledge from a lot of different varied experiences. Um, as part of the Columbus crew, we have, you know, an owner that owns Cleveland Browns and now the Milwaukee Bucks. And, you know, you're seeing this more and more in, in, in football, aren't you, where, the, you know, there's a sort of multi-club ownership across the world. Well, you know, not only that in the in the US, there's um, you know, there there are owners that have sporting interests, and so there are opportunities to to learn from that. And when we have our ownership meetings monthly, they're they're always very very interesting. Um, the perspective of of business, of growth, of um, strategy. Um, in terms of of, I've always been um, very interested in as i mentioned education and the the level four course that i did with with the fa talent strategy and development was was really eye-opening um and you know in terms of other sports in terms of reading materials um you know it, it you know some of the the formula one stuff that i read about and and the drive to survive series during covid was was interesting i I wouldn't say that i have you know a, a mentor from from another um business or, or or area but i do have a kind of a five or six people that that i, that I lean on um but i would say for the most part that they're, they're mainly within, within football Hmm. That's very intriguing. Very interesting to hear. And I mean, obviously, you look at the role of TD. I mean, you've kind of made it your own, really, within the North American game. No matter where you've been, you've been pretty responsible for the development of individual staff members and players throughout the academy and in first team circles, too. So obviously, with one eye in the future, how do you foresee that role as, of technical director as evolving? Yes, it's a good question because I think you know the, the actual title of technical director, especially in MLS, is um, can be a bit confusing because you have you have people in the, in the role that deal with MLS and the league, um, but they're called technical director. You have some that are heads of recruitment, really. Uh, and I've tried, and and it was actually a, a big part in joining this club was you know speaking to to Tim and mainly Issa at the time was. That you know the 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 technical director term has been somewhat bastardized and, and and taken into a different direction and um you know so this is this is a I would say a what you would imagine it to be from a traditional sense 
players, coaches. Um, in terms of my own growth and development, I've been very fortunate to be involved with the scouting at all levels. And whether that's a, a DP or a under-15 player, I'm, I'm fascinated by, by that. Um, I've been obviously exposed to many other asset uh, facets of of our club in terms of the salary cap and the, the inner workings of MLS, which you, you have to have a knowledge of all of these things in order to do your, your job. And, you know, that leadership team that I reference really enables everyone to be educated in all of the areas. And while we all have our lanes, we're able to swerve in and out of each other's and offer advice and a different perspective. And so that's something that's really appreciated by me, who always has the the, the idea of coming in, in in terms of learning something new or being exposed to something new. And it's only then, I think, that you can do your best work when you know how everything functions. Of course. And you know what I'm always interested to hear more about is through that development piece, development for the now versus development for the future, not only specifically pertaining to yourself, but the league itself, because as we decipher throughout this podcast, I mean, it's been a league that's on the rapid come up. You know, it's been on a rise since day one. It's been ever forwarded since the arrival of Messi and whatnot. And we're speaking throughout this podcast about the great work done in player development at Seattle and indeed Columbus. So, Mark, with your forecasting hat on, I mean, what predictions have you for the league over the coming decade? When we did some work with the league probably five years ago, it was to become a, a, a top five league. And I think we had the ambition of, of becoming a top five league. I, I served on some subcommittees with the league. And um, and it was, it was by, I think, this next World Cup. And it seems to me that we're in the top 10. And over the next five years, I think you'll see the league develop into a top five league. Um, now, we know that football changes and, you know, you have a Saudi Arabian league now, which has emerged out of nowhere and probably have a similar ambition, certainly throw the, the money at it. Um, but I think that we have an opportunity here because it's the USA, because, you you, you, you know, it's, it's, it's a continent and not, and not a country. And so the the variety of, of football and culture is very unique. You're seeing now with the the League's Cup, and um, we were we were behind Mexico probably three years ago, and now we're right there. If not at times, I think overall slightly better, skewed a little bit because the games are played in the US and it's a very different game when you go away. In Mexico, as we know, um, so I think we're making all the right strides, and it's not just about what it was, where it's like let's attract big names at the end of their career, because as referenced, it's very much about the development of a club, and when we say a club, we mean a club. We don't just mean a, a first team. Um, we mean what what's around and the identity of a place, and so with the exposure that. That the, the league's getting with the increased 
salary cap numbers with the better investment in infrastructure and player development. There's absolutely no reason why why we couldn't become a top five league in that next five to ten years. It's going to be fascinating to see how indeed your own trajectory coincides with the league's trajectory over these foreseeable years. But Mark, I have to say it's been absolute pleasure to finally get you on the podcast. I know um, you're you imparting wisdom will be worth so much to a lot of people listening to the show. But I mean, as is closing tradition on the podcast, you know yourself, I mean, for those wishing to thread a similar path to yourself in the industry, what would be your one bit of key advice be? Um, I think for, for younger people who are just starting out, obviously there's a, and quite rightly, a, a move towards expertise when you think about clubs and their development and roles that exist within clubs but i would say that in order to to be an expert that you need to have a, a good grounding and when i when i think about my trajectory it was I, I was i was willing to do all sorts of different things whether that was scouting coaching um at various ages at various levels um, you know, I, I took actually when I was in the Carolinas, I, I, I took my daughters under 13 girls, 13, to become, become a coach and learned an awful lot from that, which was quite a humbling experience when you're used to, you know, some of the better players in the region. Um, and so I, I think those those experiences and the variety of those experiences um, really enabled me to, to have an understanding of how everything works. And it's only when you know how things work that you realise that everything is connected. And having that that knowledge, I suppose, enables you to to do your best work. Fascinating. Mark, a big thank you for coming on the show today. Thank you, Connor.